Well, good morning. Can you join me in thanking the worship team uh, for their ministry to us this morning? Appreciate you guys a lot. And thank you for preparing our hearts for this. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and get them open to Mark chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, uh, there's a black one, the seat back in front of you. You're going to be on page 891 of that. And uh, we, will, we will be concluding uh, Mark chapter 4. I want to say a happy Palm Sunday to, you, uh, to all of you because that's the last time I'm going to mention that it's Palm Sunday today. Uh, because uh, we're going to be in Mark 435 and the reason for that is because Adam went through Mark 434 last week. And so um, we'll, 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 we'll make note of Easter. Uh, this coming Sunday, but we're just going to continue on a mark this morning. Uh, but one of the things I love uh, and appreciate so much, more so even as I get older, is, is the, the rhythm of the weekly gathering of the church, right? The way that God has set up, uh, set this up for his church to gather once a week and uh, to be uh, joined in praise to him and, and to sit under his word. And I love the, what I love about it is that's not done separate from life. It's done as a part of ongoing life. And so we don't, we don't leave behind uh, everyday life when we come into this room. And so often we're, we're, we find ourselves in a bit of a dichotomy, right? Where there are things to celebrate and there are things to mourn. Uh, there are things to be excited about. There are things to be grieved about. And, and uh, I want to start this morning and kind of walking in both of those lanes. Uh, we're going we're to have a word of prayer here in a second. And, and we've been trying to uh, make a concerted effort this year to, to point out things to you that, that we're excited the Lord is doing and we're going to celebrate. We definitely want to do that this morning, right? I've already mentioned it's Palm Sunday, which means the start of Holy Week, which means we have... We have an opportunity this Friday and coming Sunday to, to, to get to do what we have been put on this earth to do, which is make as big a deal of Jesus as possible. Um, and, and we're excited about that. If, if, you, if you are available, we'd love to have you here Friday night at 7 for a good Friday service. Uh, and then any of our three services next week, 8, 9, 30, and 11, uh, there, are, there are invite cards in the back. We'd love for you to pass those out. People, people are just more prone to say yes uh, at a time like this uh, than any other time. And so we're pumped about that. And we're still not over what the Lord did last week. If you were here for our uh, third service last week, you saw the, the baptism of Matt and Pacey Price, uh, which is, it's not every day you get to see a married couple get baptized on the same day. Uh, and it's such a cool story, and they have three young children, and, and just to see uh, the Lord take hold of their lives, and I just kept thinking this week about their kids and how different their future is going to be now, uh, that God has grabbed hold of their parents. And, and so we're, we're thrilled about that, and yet at the same time, we have in mind our neighbors to the south in Sullivan this morning, uh, who were who decimated uh, by, by the, the tornadoes on Friday night, and not just Sullivan, Owen County got hit, Robinson, Illinois, and uh, we're praying about if maybe we'll have some opportunities as a church to be able to do some ministry on the ground there, um, and if we get wind of opportunities, we will let you know. Uh, but also families in Nashville this morning of, of, the, of the Christian uh, church and school uh, that uh, was attacked on, uh, on Tuesday or Monday, and uh, three little ones were killed, and three staff members were killed, and so uh, we, we're not afraid of stepping into both those waters this morning because Jesus has an answer for both, right? Jesus is the one who gets the praise and the credit and glory for the good times, and he's the one that has the answer and the solution and the hope in the midst of the hard times, and so we're going to step into both those and just have a word of prayer this morning, and then we'll turn our attention to Mark, and so I'm going to invite you to join me into that, so let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning with the hope that you are at, at work to this very day and that Jesus, uh, your son, is working and the spirit is working, God. And we know uh, that you're at work in the good and the bad. Uh, we know that, that your word promises that in this world we're going to have troubles, but we can take heart because you've overcome the world. 
And so we, uh, we join in celebrating uh, with the Price family this morning. We're thrilled about what you did in their life. We're thrilled to witness their baptism last week. And as a church, we want to just continue to rally around them and be a support for what you've done in that family. God, we're thrilled for the opportunity we have to celebrate what gives us hope, to celebrate the fact that you, uh, you came and you took on our form and you suffered tremendously and died in our place and then rose again to offer us a hope that is unconquerable and undefeated. And so, Lord, we pray that that story would be the story you heard loudest in Sullivan this morning. We pray that that story would be the story that's proclaimed loudest in the city of Nashville today. We pray that you would come alongside those who've, who've lost material uh, things, who, who are concerned about their, their future and their possessions and their finances because a storm came and took it away. Would you be with them? And then we pray for those grieving families who've, who've lost loved ones uh, in both places. And, Lord, would, would the hope of your tomb and the truth of your gospel shine brightest in those situations? God, as we turn our attention to your word, uh, we ask, uh, as, we, as we look at this story of you calming a storm, we pray for those in the midst of a storm right now in this room, uh, that they would hear from you. God, would all of us uh, be able to push aside the distractions of life and just hear clearly from Jesus in his word this morning. And we ask that he gets the glory from all this. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles open to Mark 4, please keep them there. And I want to start with a statement that hopefully is not shocking to you. I love my wife, right? Hopefully that's not surprising, but uh, that love is something that alters my life and experiences because when a man loves a woman, he will do things to try to make her happy, things that might not even be wise or logical at the time. And so a few summers back, we had a trip uh, planned and scheduled and, and a curveball came at the last minute, which was, the curveball was in the form of Crin's family. So Crin's family uh, uh, has a once a year gathering. It's their Christmas gathering, but whichever uh, aunt or uncle hosts it gets to decide when they're celebrating Christmas that year. Sometimes it's Labor Day, sometimes it's Fourth of July, Sometimes it's around Christmas. And so we got word that at the, the Saturday, the conclusion of this trip we had would be the annual gathering of our family. And I knew that it was something the Korean wanted to go to, but I was scheduled to preach the next morning here, four and a half hours away. And so I told her, I was like, listen, I can go on the trip, but there's no way I can do the family reunion because it starts at like 7 p.m. So what do I stay 45 minutes and then take off and drive four and a half hours and risk getting a crash and I come to church the next day tired? It's just not going to work. And I saw how, like, just immediately crestfallen she was because this meant, A, on the original trip, we were going to have to take two cars so we couldn't ride together. And that goes a lot of car time and a lot of discussion. And then, B, that she would go to the reunion without me. And I was like, there's just nothing I can do about it, you know. And so I moved on, and then I started thinking about, like, well, maybe there is something I can do about it. And so I called Lawrence, uh, a longtime member here who's a pilot, and I was like, is there any chance, like, you'll, you'll just be flying around that Saturday night? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, where are you going to be? And I said, in Ohio. He's like, I can totally pick you up. And I said, like, great. And so I went to Korea. I was like, listen, I get to go. There. We get to take one car on the trip. I get to go to the reunion. I get to stay till like 9 o'clock. And then I'll get an hour flight home. And I'll be rested and ready for church the next day. It's a great thing. She was so happy. Everything was going smoothly until the night of the pickup. And Lawrence calls me. He's like, hey, man, I'm going to be a little delayed. I'm not going to be there at 9. No big deal. And then 9 turned to 10, and 10 turned to 11, and 11 turned to midnight, and finally it was like 1.15. And I was like, all right, well, there went the good night's rest, but, you know, I'm still going to be home by about 2.30. I can still get home. And I climb into this little, this little uh, twin-engine plane. It's a four-seater, and it was me and three other pilots. 
because uh, Lawrence was at an air show with two of his pilot buddies that day in Wisconsin because they just live different lives than we do, right? They can just go to Wisconsin for a day and then fly home. And so I climbed in the back left seat and uh, took off. And I'd been in his plane one time before this, and it was uh, the smoothest ride of my entire life. It was a sunny, clear day. You didn't even know you were moving. It just kind of felt like you floated there. That was not the weather this night. This night, there was heavy clouds everywhere. There were storms that we were going to have to watch radar and fly around. And I really wasn't that worried about it. But, but I don't know if you know this. When you're in a small plane and you fly through a cloud, it creates huge, huge turbulence. I did not know this, okay? I learned it about 45 seconds after takeoff. And then it just kept continuing. I'm looking out in the wings and they're just rocking back and forth. And you know that pit in your stomach you get when you just go suddenly over a hill? Are you drop really fast? It just kept happening over and over and over again. And I was like, we're gonna die. Like, I know we're gonna die. Like, this is it. And then I think to myself, okay, you're with three pilots. Just look at them. See how they react. And so I turned up my headset and Lauren's, and the pilot to, the, to his right are up there. And they're just literally just talking about life. They're just talking about like their day, what they're going to do that week. And, and, and you watch them bouncing up and down. And it's not even phasing them at all. And I turn to the pilot to my right. He's got his head back and he's just snoring. He's out completely. And I think, all right, so this is not a thing, I guess. Like this is nothing to be afraid of. And it, and it worked. Like the rest of the flight, I just wasn't worried. And we just rocked and bounced all the way back to Terre Haute, Okay. And I've heard people tell me similar advice, like on commercial airlines, if you're going through really bad tournaments, look at the flight attendants. If the flight attendants aren't scared, you're fine, right? It's good advice. But you know that we have similar invitations in the Bible? As we go through the rocky times, we go through turbulence and storms of life, we have these crazy invitations from like Jesus saying, follow me in Matthew 11, where he says, learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. You'll find that my burden is easy and light. In Philippians 4, we have the promise that the peace of God, which transcends, surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That we're commanded to not be anxious about anything. In James 1, we're actually told to consider it all joys when we face trials of all kinds. And if you're like me, right, and this is, this is the way I've handled these verses pretty much through my life, right? You, you, you know these verses and you've clung to them in really tragic events or really turbulent times. But what's missing is this, in the ongoing daily living of these promises, they've seemed a little more far off. The the day-to-day peace, the the abiding joy, the the ongoing conquering of of anxiety and stress, that has remained just a little bit outside your grasp. And I believe that the Lord has been teaching me a lot lately, and I'm far from arrived at this, and can teach us through this passage today that the solution to that isn't some system, it's not an experience, it's not more ministries and more programs and more offerings. It's much, much simpler than that. It's just knowing Jesus more, learning from him more, fixing our eyes on him, and then trying to emulate what we see him do. That simple solution, that is the solution to a life that remains elusive to so many people despite it being offered to all of us. And so to set the stage for this, I'm going to invite Lauren Foxworthy up this morning. She's going to be reading for us uh, the the last uh, section in Mark chapter 4. She's going to be reading uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Lauren. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. 
A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. Thank you, Lauren. You guys can have a seat. As always, keep your Bibles open there to Mark uh, chapter 4. And, uh, and any supporting verse we'll put on, but honestly, we're, we're just going to do a deep dive into this uh, story this morning. And I want to point out to you at the start, verse 35 just says, on that day uh, when eating had come. And so, so that timestamp is telling us that this is the same day that began all the way back in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 says that he, Jesus, began to teach by the sea. And a very large crowd had gathered around him. And so the rest of chapter 4, he's been right there by the Sea of Galilee. And, and he's been teaching. So even though we've spent quite a few weeks in this chapter, it's just been one day in the life of Jesus. And this is why you may have noticed that the theme of Jesus' teaching has been the same all chapter long. Right? He wanted to have a tone. He wanted to have a focus. He wanted to have a message for that day and not, not give competing ones or overwhelm them. And, and, and so at the end of this day, there's one more lesson to be taught. Only this one's not, one gonna, this one's not gonna be a parable. It's not gonna be a lecture. It's not gonna be a discussion. This will be an opportunity for his disciples to live out what they have learned from Jesus. And Jesus and the 12 and the other travelers and get into a, a group of boats, uh, a group of boats, and they, and they travel, uh, they set out to travel across the sea. And the sea here is, is the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, just in its geographic location, is surrounded by some higher hills and, and then some really narrow valleys between the hills that act as, as wind tunnels. And so uh, anybody who would be on the sea frequently would know that this, this is one of the seas that's prone to just sudden unexpected storms, like with almost outwarning. And the first thing that I want to point out to you this morning is not, it's not the main point of the sermon, but I, I feel the need to point it out because it, it speaks to a misconception we have a lot of times, and it's this. It's obedience that led these guys to a storm. And the reason I want to point that out is one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament is, is the story of Jonah, where Jonah's a prophet of the Lord, and God goes to him and says, Jonah, I need you to go to the city of Nineveh and preach, and Jonah doesn't want to. He doesn't like the Ninevites. He doesn't want them uh, to find the grace and mercy of God. And so he disobeys God and he runs away. And how he does it is he goes to a harbor and he, and he boards a boat that's sailing for Tarshish, which is the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. And God's response to that in Jonah's story is to send a storm onto the sea and create messes for Jonah. And from that story that so many people heard in church growing up and others like it, human beings and even followers of Jesus often just assume that storms in life come from our disobedience. Now, there are certainly times where we have made a bed and the Lord allows us to lie in it. There are times that God disciplines us and most often his discipline is just he allows you to feel the full ramifications of the decisions you're making. But not all suffering, not all trials, not all storms are a result of human disobedience. And the reason for this is because God's work in our lives is, is about transformation. He's not in, interested in modifying our behavior. He's not interested in improving us slightly. He's, he's setting about to change us, change who we are completely. The, the New Testament term is transformation. Which Think of a, how a caterpillar transforms and becomes a butterfly, an entirely new thing. 
And that kind of transformation, that kind of change, that takes more than parables, and it takes more than sermons, and it takes more than Bible studies. We need to learn from God, yes, but then we need testing. Romans 10 says that the hearing of God's word is meant to produce faith. And so we must be able to put into practice what it is we hear and learn, which is a part of why God allows these tests in our lives. And these disciples, in this instance, they faced a storm because they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. And let's at least give them this much credit. This was a pretty intense test. Now remember, a handful of these guys are really experienced fishermen. Right? They've been on the waters before. There's not, there's not a lot you can do to surprise them. They've been through storms before. But this one got their attention. Uh, verse 37, Mark calls it a great windstorm. Right? The wind is violent. The, the waves it's creating are huge. We're told that the, the water is crashing over the top of the boat. The boat is taking on water. They're, they're, they're about to be submerged and sink. And you add it all up. And this is a storm unlike any they've been through before. And they're terrified. But what is Jesus doing the whole time the storm is raging? Well, verse 38 tells us he was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. He's just catching a nap on the ride. Which tells us at least three things. Number one, he's tired. He's tired. It's been a really long day. He started by teaching thousands on a little platform in the sea. And then he, then he had to follow up discussions with his disciples where he shepherded them. And he's, he's been pouring out his heart, pouring out his life, been teaching others, been investing in others, shepherding others, showing compassion to others all day long. And he's just tired and he knows he needs to rest. That alone is something that we can learn from. Number two, he's at peace. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more peaceful state for human beings in sleeping. Right? Every now and then I'll, I'll go in and look at, at our young girls sleeping and I'll just think, how in the world do you create so much chaos and terror when you're awake because they look so angelic and peaceful when they're sleeping, right? And then number three, he's, he's not afraid. He's not. Storm hasn't even woken him up. Okay, so he's tired, he's at peace, and he's not afraid. But the disciples in the boat with him, they're terrified. In fact, I would say they're in full freak-out mode at this point. And you ever notice when, when emotions are running high, people have a way of saying things they end up regretting later? And these guys, they go, they wake Jesus up, and it's interesting to me what they do. They don't ask him for help. They don't ask him why there's a storm. They don't ask him why he led them in a storm. They don't ask him what he's up to. They don't even ask him what he's sleeping. What do they do? They actually question him and his character. The question they ask him is this. Don't you care? Like, don't you care that we're about to die? Now, everybody who's ever had young children in their home know what it's like to be suddenly awakened by deep sleep by something that seems like an emergency at the time. Whether it's an infant crying or somebody fell out of bed or somebody got sick on the carpet and all those wonderful, horrible things, right? You remember how challenging that is to, to be in the sleep and then you're startled and you kind of have to wake up and then immediately assess what in the world is going on. And you add to that for Jesus, these aren't children, right? He's in a boat taking on water. The, these, are, these are grown-ups that they're yelling at him. They're, they're, there's a storm all around. There's people questioning his character. This is a tough way to wake up from a nap. And so what does he do? Well, he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't answer their accusation. He just gets up. And I love how the Bible puts it. He rebukes the storm. Now, I've tried this, by the way. 
I've rebuked winter every year for the last 35 years, and nothing has ever changed, okay? It just stays. It never goes away. But when Jesus does it, just at his word, the storm and the sea are immediately stilled. Now, it's at this point in the story, I think we'd all agree it's an incredible story. But if you, especially if you're somebody who grew up in church, or you know the Bible well, and you've, and you've been reading and hear about all the miracles Jesus does, this is not a confusing story at this point. Because everybody has played their parts almost as we would expect them to play it. Disciples, they have nailed the role of scared, limited, sinful human beings. I mean, sure, it wasn't a fair accusation or question they leveled at Jesus, but they thought they were going to die. They're panicking. We, we can give them some grace there. And Jesus, well, him taking a nap through the whole thing is kind of amusing to me. But he wakes up and does what we would expect him to do. He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't get mad. He just tells the storm to stop, and it stops. It's what you might guess the miracle-working, all-powerful Son of God would do in a situation like that. However, it's the final two verses of Mark 4. It's the final two verses of this story where it takes a turn to the unexpected. And the first is in verse 40, where Jesus is perplexed by the reaction of his disciples. And I try to be very careful with my wording there, because whenever you're applying an emotion to someone as powerful as Jesus, I know how much weight and ramifications that can carry. And Mark doesn't do us the favor of telling us what emotion Jesus was feeling when he asked these questions in verse 40. Verse 40 simply just reads, then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And so was he disappointed? Was he angry? Was he upset? Was he offended? I, I don't know. It's, it's like trying to read emotions into a text or email. You, you can't ever be sure. But I, what I do know is this. He's not commending them. He's not saying, great job, guys. You handled this situation perfectly. And at the root of his questions, like, it, he seems to be perplexed. Like, it's, it's like this. You still don't believe? Like, like, you're still afraid? After all that you've seen, and after all that you've been taught, and after all that you've witnessed, and all you've seen modeled by me, you're still lacking in faith. You still don't know who I am. And the reactions of the disciples might seem reasonable to you and I, because they were facing a really intense, scary storm. The boat was starting to sink. They thought they were about to die. But I think in addition to all they'd heard and seen before this moment with Jesus, there are three reasons that Jesus was perplexed. And the first is this, is that he told them they were going to get to the other side. Now, he didn't promise them an easy trip. He never said, guys, we're going to sail across here. There's going to be no storms. It's going to be smooth the whole way. But he did say they would arrive. And Jesus always means what he says. Secondly, I think he's perplexed at their reaction because he was with them. Yes, the storm was powerful. Yes, it was intense. But someone greater than the storm was in the boat with him the whole time. And then thirdly, the one they completely missed is this. They could see that he was at peace. Not only was Jesus not afraid, not only was Jesus not freaking out, he was sleeping. They, they could have seen that. They could have learned from that. And, but instead of learning from it, instead of being calmed by his demeanor, what did they do? They were actually offended by it. And so it's, there's a consistency in the gospel, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where there's, there's one thing that Jesus marvels at. It's, it's hard to surprise the Son of God, but there's one thing that, that he marveled at. And sometimes he marveled in amazement, and sometimes his marvel was more like a perplexment, right? Where, where it was always about how much or how little faith someone displayed in him. 
And Jesus knows the greatest danger they faced was not the storm. The greatest danger those disciples faced was their lack of faith. That unbelief is far more perilous and damaging than any physical danger. And it goes back to a truth the Bible consistently tells us, that our greatest problems are never around us. Our greatest problems are always within us. The greatest problem in my life is my sin and my unbelief and my lack of faith and my idolatry and more. I mean, look at this story. What did did the disciples' lack of faith lead to? It it led to spiritual amnesia. They, They forgot who they were dealing with. They literally forgot who Jesus was and what he's capable of. Their lack of faith led to, therefore, an unnecessary fear. They were panicking and freaking out, and they didn't have to. Their lack of faith led to an unfair and incorrect doubting of the goodness of Christ. And so Jesus looks at them, and he's perplexed and marveled at their lack of faith. But that's not the only interesting reaction in this story. Look at verse 41. Verse 41 says, And they were terrified and asked one another. These are the disciples. Who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. What's really interesting to me is that the disciples are more afraid after the storm. The CSB uses the word terrified. Your your translation might say they were filled with a great fear. Others say overwhelmed by fear. The Greek language there indicates this consuming, tremendous fear. Not during the storm, after it. And so what's going on here? Well, one of the things I love about people is how they can always surprise you. I always enjoy uh, learning new things about people that I thought I already knew, right? And one of my favorite things in life is, is, is making my wife laugh. And so when I make her laugh, I just feel like I've won a big prize. And so uh, for the last almost 17 years of marriage, I've tracked it, I've studied it, I've tried to figure out what her sense of humor is so I can, I can aim at it directly and make her laugh. But this, this long into marriage, she still shocks me. Because I can't, for the life of me, figure out why she laughs at the things she does in movies and shows. Like, there's no logical pattern to it at all. There are scenes and jokes that I think are hilarious and I'm cracking up and she just barely cracks a smile. And then there'll come a scene or joke where she laughs out loud. I'm looking at her like, that? Like, that's the thing that makes you laugh? Like, and she's still surprised. I don't get it. Like, I haven't been able to track it. Or like I've worked um, more closely, I've worked closely with Pastor Adam for 13 years. There's nobody in my life that I've worked longer with or closer with than him. And I feel like I know him pretty well after all that. But last week, he stood on this stage and professed love for something called Matilda the Musical. I didn't know that about him, right? I learned it the same time you learned it. And so I looked into it and learned another new thing. Adam really loves a weird and not very great movie, right? It's just, it's just really awkward. And so I'm learning new things about him all the time. And, and what happened here is these disciples, they had traveled with Jesus. They'd, they'd heard his teachings. They, they got the fuller explanations and they were convinced he was the Messiah, But being Jewish guys, they knew the Old Testament prophecy. They knew the Messiah would have the power to do miracles, especially the ones they've already seen Jesus do. And so my theory is this, that their assumption was that the Messiah would be a man that would be given that power, borrowed that power from God. But this? I mean, think about this. This was the scariest, most powerful, most intense storm these fishermen had ever seen. They were convinced they were going to die. There were no prophecies about that. And they watched Jesus wake up from a nap and just look out the sea and be like, stop it. And it listens. They had no earthly idea he could do that. 
And so listen to the question they're asking themselves. Verse 41, they're saying to themselves, who is this? They, they, he's so much bigger than they realized. It's hitting them in this moment. This is not some human Messiah who has borrowed power from God. This is not someone who's a great teacher. This is, this is somebody who the natural world, the nature itself, immediately obeys at his command. And there's only one being with that kind of power, and it's God himself. And they're learning something new about Jesus in real time, and it terrified them. And by the way, get used to that reaction. The next few stories, especially in Mark 5, are, 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 are instances in which Jesus reveals just how much power he has, and the reaction every time is somebody's terrified of him. In this moment, the, the awe and wonder and fear that were directed at the storm, they're not directed at the storm anymore. They're now focused on the one who told the storm to stop without any effort. And maybe you're out this morning, you're thinking at this point, the disciples still aren't getting it, right? We're not supposed to be afraid of Jesus. He's gracious and loving. He needs to be our best friend, right? You know what? I think this is growth. I think this is a good sign, which leads us to what I believe this story calls us to because God included his words so that we can learn it and, and apply it to our lives. And the first way to do that is to do some of what disciples did here and is to begin with a healthy fear of Jesus. See, there's this seeming dichotomy in the Bible, right? Maybe you've, maybe you've come across this. On the one hand, do you know what the most repeated phrase in the Bible is? It's do not be afraid. Fear not, right? I, and I've, I've actually heard that it's, I've heard multiple people say or, or seen online that, that that phrase is in the Bible 365 times. God gave it to you one for every day. And if you've heard that and that was comforting to you, I'm sorry to tell you this morning, that's just not true. And it's a good thing, right? Because on leap year, February 29th, we'd all be in trouble, okay? But it is in there a lot, like a lot, more than any other phrase. And so it seems very apparent that God does not want us to be afraid. And the vast majority of the time that we find that command, that phrase is coupled with a reminder or a promise that the reason we, can't be, we, we should not be afraid is because the Lord is with us. And so the Bible is clear on that. And yet on the other hand, we find this. Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so it seems like we're told to fear not because God is with us, but then we're told to fear God. Because that can seem a little confusing, can it? But here's why this actually makes all the sense in the world. We will never possess wisdom if we recreate God in our image. You see, God made human beings in his image, and ever since, we've tried to do the same to him. We try to make him less threatening. We try to make him less powerful. We try to make him less immense. We make him more comfortable, more permissive. We try to make him more like us. And if we never grasp fully who God is, we will remain unwise for all our days. But when we grasp the fullness of God's nature and identity and power, the first reaction must be fear and awe and wonder. Jesus stood in that boat and he flexed just a shred of his power. And it terrified the guys who were with him every single day. Because for the first time, they were starting to see the fullness of who he is. He's not some human messiah. He is the sovereign, creating Lord of the universe. 
He is the visible image of the invisible God. He is, he is before all things. He is above all things. He is the head of his church. He is ruling at the right hand of the Father. He is supreme and preeminent over everything. At his name, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He is great. He is good and he is loving, but he is not safe. He's not safe in any way. And it's only when we put him in that rightful place, only when we have that healthy fear of him, do we actually begin to grasp for the first time the love and mercy and grace of his cross. That the very one who could rightly condemn and destroy us forever is the same one who took the whip and the nails and the thorns for us. The very one who could rightly kill me and send me to hell forever and would be right to do so died in my place and descended to hell on my behalf. That the very one who could snuff me out forever offers me eternal life. You see, it's a healthy fear of Jesus that does not drive us away from him. It helps us to see his grace for what it is. Amazing, remarkable, uncontainable grace. So don't downplay who he is. Don't, don't minimize him. Don't try to make him more moldable or more manageable for you. See him for everything that he truly is. And begin from a place of healthy fear. And secondly, fix your eyes on him. This is what the disciples didn't do. And we're told this. This is actual command in the scriptures. Hebrews 12 tells us to let us run with endurance, endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It's an amazing passage. I think it's a passage that we need to return to again and again and again because the author of Hebrews compares this life to a race and one that requires endurance. Why? Because the race won't be smooth and easy all the time. Endurance is how you keep going when things get tough. And the way that you do that, the Bible tells us, is by keeping your eyes, fixing your eyes on Jesus. The one who's out in front and we're following. We stay curious about him. We pursue knowing him. We learn about him. And then we ask, what would Jesus do if he were me in this situation? And then during those times when it gets rocky, when life is uncertain or unstable or crazy tense and you feel like you just can't go on or you might even die, you look to your king. You look to your king. As that plane seemingly bounced all over the sky, I found hope and the pilots who had done it before and weren't scared. As that boat was rocking wildly all over the Sea of Galilee, the disciples could have found peace and their rabbi taking a nap in the corner. And as the storms of life come for us now, we can find our hope, we can find our strength, and we can find our peace by looking to the very source of those things. See, when the disciples' focus turned to the storm, it revealed something about them. In that moment, they believed that the storm was more powerful than Jesus. And of course, that's an outright lie. But I'm wondering what you're believing today. Is there a storm? Is there a hurdle? Is there an obstacle? Is there a circumstance in your life that you've operated as if and believed it's bigger than Jesus? Is there a sin? Is there a lifestyle? Is there an illusion of control that you believe is better than Jesus and so you won't give it up and surrender to him? Now, if I, if I can convince you of anything today, 
I hope I can at least convince you of this. If nothing, then just for a few moments this morning to take your focus off of your fear, to take your focus off of your problem, to take your focus off of that situation that's causing you anxiety, to take your focus off of your addiction and your relationship problems, to take your focus off of that which is stealing your joy and causing you to have spiritual amnesia, to take your focus off of that which you've convinced yourself is actually better than him, and to take your focus off of that which is causing you to question the character and goodness of God and place your focus fully on Jesus Christ. Ask him to sustain you. Ask him to give you his hope. Ask him to give you his peace that he does not give like the world gives. Ask him to save you from your sins. Ask him what it is that he wants you to learn through this and ask him to increase your faith and trust in him. And if nothing else, meditate on the fact that there's nothing you're facing that is bigger or more powerful than he is. There's nothing you're clinging to that's better than him. And so no matter how big the storm, he, he, he can command it to stop and it will stop. Which tells us that if it continues this morning, he has a reason for it. But either way, our hope is him. Our hope is not in some good teacher, a rabbi, a role model. Our hope is found in the eternal, sovereign, all-powerful, all-consuming, massive, supreme, ruling, gracious, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on him. Let's pray. Father, I, I'm so moved by the image in your word of, of your son standing on the edge of the boat and telling the storm to cease and be still, and it was. And Lord, there are people in our lives, there are people in this room right now who are going through a storm, and we love nothing more I'd love nothing more for you to say the same command this morning. That you would just tell the storm to cease and be still and it would be over. And my Lord, if in your sovereign wisdom you choose to continue it this morning, you choose to not yet stop, but I pray that they will, they will see more than just the image of you quieting the storm. They will see the same image of you sleeping through it. Of you being at full peace, full rest, full assurance, full hope, full calmness while it was raging. Lord, may we learn from that image more than we learn from the second one. God, I invite you to have your way in this midst. Lord, speak to us. If there are storms in your life that, that obedience has led us to, if there are storms in our life that disobedience has led us to, we pray, I pray right now for these people that, that you would accomplish what you want to accomplish through that storm. You would increase their faith. You would increase their trust in you. And that all around the room, God, as we consider how you want us to respond today, would we not minimize you? Would we not make you smaller or more manageable or less scary? Would we begin with a healthy fear of who you are, a healthy awe and wonder at the grace you show to us? And we pray that you would just speak loudly and clearly in this time. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before we dismiss you this morning, we're going to give you a chance just to respond, to pray to the Lord and just wrestle with some things he might be saying to you through Mark 4 or a song or any way that he spoke to you this morning. And uh, this is your opportunity uh, to relate with him, to commune with him, to talk to him, to pray to him, to surrender, submit to him. Do not miss it. Uh, we, give this, uh, we give this so it can be a privilege for you.